Hey, it's Steph Dixon, and welcome to the Live Wide Awake podcast. Thank you for being one of our listeners in 88 countries around the world. Today, we're speaking with John Pavan, sustainability author, consultant, and speaker. He spent two decades in the business of saving our earth. Having worked for United Nation and McKinsey, John has studied sustainability firsthand from factories to inside Fortune 500 companies. He's the founder at Falcrum Strategic Advisors, program director for Asia Sustainability Leaders Council at the Conference Board, advisor to the U.S. Green Chamber of Commerce, and author of multiple books, including Sustainability and the Rest of Us, The Great Greenwashing, and recently DocuSign's ebook Is Paper Costing Us the Earth? In this episode, we talk about a brief history of sustainability, cutting through the BS, corporate greenwashing, pragmatic altruism, and so much more. I hope you enjoy this smooth conversation thanks to our sound partner, Audio Technica. Okay, it's time to live wide awake. Well, John, thank you so much for joining me. I'm really looking forward to hearing more about your journey and all your expertise. And I'd love to start because you've worked for two decades now in the business of saving the earth. I loved that line on your bio. So where have you been and how did you sort of end up here? My journey, and to start off, thanks for having me. It's uh, really exciting to get get talking about this this morning. My journey's been sort of all over the place, I guess, when you look at it on paper. But I, I suppose I started always in the the public sector and looking at public goods. So initially at the UN in New York, kind of the the public good organization, and I was there for many years. And on the advice of some of some of my mentors there, decided to take a step out and go into the private sector. So from there on out, I've kind of been in the consulting world ever since then, but always looking at public sector or more of the, I suppose, feel good side of consulting. So with uh, McKinsey and AC Nielsen working with their public sector clients. And then it would have been about 2008. I took a trip to Shanghai for a vacation and was just amazed by the way everybody was living there. Just uh, opened my eyes culturally and went back to New York. That's the height of the Great Recession and realized, oh, maybe it's time for a change. So I uh, you know, bit the bullet, went over to Shanghai. And the next thing I knew, 10 years had passed. <laughs> and uh, that's when I really fell into, I guess, sustainability proper. So that would have been even before we called it sustainability. So I was trying to figure out a way to marry all of that public sector experience in a very commercial city. For those that haven't been there, it's probably one of the most commercial cities in the world. So I kind of fell into sustainability, putting those two things together. So working with corporations on their, what would have been CSR back then, but it's since evolved into what we call sustainability now. So working with uh, BSR, who's sort of the McKinsey of the sustainability world, and then setting up my own organization, Fulcrum Strategic Advisors, where we look primarily at the governance side of sustainability, as well as strategic communications. Then ended up in, in Australia about three years ago, and the rest is history. Yeah, amazing. So China for 10 years. Wow, that's pretty interesting. And working in sustainability in China, I don't think that's something that a lot of people would instantly think would be a thriving space. So maybe you can share a little bit more about what it was like and and how they because I know you also talk that we can actually learn from China about this space. So would love to hear your thoughts on that. Absolutely. And it's interesting because when I do talk about when I put China and sustainability together in a sentence, people's eyes glaze over. I get weird looks because you're right. They don't really fit together in most people's minds. But what's interesting is about the time that I, I moved to China, the government made a big shift in terms of changing perceptions, but also what was happening within the country from being this center of the world's manufacturing to more of a skilled labor market. So part of that was creating the economy. They knew they had to do it from a reputation perspective, but 
but also it just made sense to do because China's obviously been hit with a lot of uh, bad pollution. It's very salient there versus a lot of places in the West where we hear about pollution, but we don't quite experience it. So it's a little bit different there. So the government did make a big push for greening their operations at a, a national level, but also for the manufacturing sector, state-owned enterprises, getting rid of sort of these really polluting mom and pop shops that had been all over the place. So they, they were making a very concerted effort. And I fit in there just sort of uh, serendipitously at the right time. So China has made amazing changes over the past 10 years. And just for clarity, so everybody knows I'm not, I wouldn't consider myself a Sinophile. I love the place. It was a great experience, but I'm not, uh, I'm not raw, raw necessarily because there's obviously a lot of things that still need to change. It's not perfect. But at the end of the day, we're trying to move this massive battleship in the water and it's going to take a bit of time. So it's not like turning a, a switch on and off. China is going to take a bit of a bit of time before they're perfect but they have made great strides in terms of greening their economy they invest more every year than the entire EU combined in green innovation which is always a, an amazing statistic not because they just for the reputation side of things but because it just makes sound financial and business sense to to green and that's the same thing with corporations which I'm sure we'll talk about in a few minutes but sustainability is not just something that makes you feel good. It, it's something that makes your business differentiated and is is sustainable over the long term for a business. Yeah, no, absolutely. We're definitely going to dive a little bit more into that. But first, I'd like to zoom out a little bit. So outside of just looking at, through the China lens, having worked in the space, you've obviously seen a lot of evolution of conversation, focus and action. So how have things actually changed? And how do you feel about where we are right now? Because I know a lot of activists and a lot of my friends, environmentalists, they go in and out of a lot of eco-anxiety and feeling jaded, especially after the disappointing lack of action of cops, myself included. Last year, I had like, you know, I got I got very deep into it. So I'm just wondering, after everything you've seen and being in this uh, space for as long as you have, how do you feel about where we're at? So I call myself a pragmatic altruist, uh, which means, you know, I, I care, but I'm also I'm pragmatic. So I'm realistic about things. And that's that's where my starting point is, is, is realism. So are things perfect? No. Can we do, be doing a whole lot more? Absolutely. Is sustainability still fit for purpose? No. So we're sort of in this transition period where we know things need to change but we're not quite sure how to do it. And I guess if I take a step back, we look at sustainability, sort of the history of it, gosh, over the past, uh, let's say about 80 years, like the modern environmental movement kind of started in the 1960s. You know, you had Rachel Carson, Silent Spring sort of kicked things off looking at pesticides in the environment. And that was an interesting time. So kind of sustainability 1.0, where, where everybody was sort of in lockstep together, moving in the same direction, had a shared goal. I mean, the amazing thing is you even had politicians on side, right? It was a group of American senators that started the first Earth Day, which if you look at that through the lens of everything going on today in our political world, it's just mind boggling that politicians would be on side with saving the earth. But that was the case. And then we sort of moved into the, the nastiness of the 1980s and the conglomerations and what I would call sustainability 2.0. So that was kind of sort of sort of spearheaded by greed, I suppose. So you had corporations getting bigger, becoming monopolies. Even in the NGO space, you had sort of the, the how would I say it, <laughs> corporationalization of, of 
NGOs where they became businesses in and of themselves. They still do amazing things, but at the end of the day, they're businesses, right? And they operate like them. They're accountable to different stakeholders. And so that was not a great time when it came to trying to save the earth. But then you move into, let's say, the turn of the millennium, 2000 to 2010. Businesses started to adopt more sustainable practices, primarily in sort of the supply chain FMCG space. A lot of that happening in China, not because they cared necessarily, but because they knew they had to fix their operations. So it started on the labor side, then morphed into charity and philanthropy, into CSR, as it was called back then, so corporate responsibility. And kind of from 2010 on, that's when things have really picked up momentum. And you started to see the savvier businesses, primarily multinationals in the Fortune 1000, realize the the business imperatives of sustainability so that it makes sound financial sense, like we've talked about, and that reputationally, it just uh, sets them apart from all of their competitors. And, and we know that the business case for sustainability is strong. There's plenty of stats that are floating around all over the place about how sustainable businesses, purpose-driven businesses are always outperforming their competitors. Employees at those businesses are always happier, healthier, more productive, the businesses have a better reputation overall. So sustainability works. Now we're kind of in this period where we need to get the rest of the world coming along with us. And I speak primarily through the corporate lens because that's kind of how I spend my days. There are businesses now that still have not started on the sustainability train. And yes, they're very far behind. But I suppose to end on this question on kind of a hopeful note, if I look forward in my crystal ball about 10 years or 15 years from now, I don't think there's going to be space anymore for unsustainable businesses. I think in the very short term, they're not going to be around anymore because people just aren't going to stand for it. And it's not a salient business model. So now I know when consumers go to the shelf, they have to make a conscious choice. They have to research and they probably have to pay more if they want to purchase good. 10 years, 15 years from now, I don't think that's going to be the case. I think all products will be good products to purchase. We just have to make a choice about what products we want to buy. Mm. Thank you so much for that history. I really appreciated the sort of sped up but very clear um, evolution of, of how we got here today. So thank you for that. This is something that I guess always baffles me right now. So I'm glad we ended on a hopeful note. At the same time, the stats are there. The proof is there that sustainability businesses outperform and that sustainability works. All of this is there. It's, it's, in, it's literally in the evidence. Yet I still feel, at least from my perspective, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but there still seems to be a lot of resistance and a lot of like box checking without actual deep implementation and evolution of companies from the inside out. And of course, I'm not trying to paint like a really broad stroke here. There are some companies that, of course, are leading the way and doing great stuff. But it does seem that in general, companies are still trying to get away with business as usual for as long as possible. And so... Is that true, do you think? Uh, and like, if the case is so strong, which it is, and you shared some stats on it, what is really stopping them? Because it does make financial sense. It does help them to want to be able to survive in the long term. So yeah, I'm just a bit, I always get baffled with that. It's it's a question I've grappled with myself and trying to figure out Okay, what in the world is going on and why where's the where's the cognitive dissonance happening when in the boardroom, right? So it all comes down to at least in my mind this shift in in the boardrooms to quarter by quarter KPIs. I, I think it all comes down to that. So now boards and senior management and executives are all based their performance, their remuneration, the the they're keeping their jobs is all based quarter by quarter. Every three months, they're having to report in on what they're doing, how good they're doing, how profitable they've been, which runs 
counter to everything we do in sustainability, where we're looking very long term. We're looking 5, 10, 15, 20 years into the future, making long term strategies. So there's this, this butting of heads between the two models. Those businesses that are leading the way, that are doing great things, that have really, and I hate that I'm about to use this term, walking their talk, are, are businesses that have found a way to marry the quarter-by-quarter quarter metrics with the long-term vision of sustainability. And that is, like you said, a, a very small handful of companies. And until we get there, until we get boards on board, and until we get executives on board with thinking longer term, we're still going to be coming up against these issues. And we're starting to see a bit of change. Change. Again, painting with broad strokes, like you said, I love I love that phrase. I use it I use it quite a bit. But painting with broad strokes, we are starting to see sustainability KPIs and metrics making their way into remuneration at the executive and board level. We're starting to see a lot more boards bring in sustainability experts as as advisors. So it's it's happening. It's not going to happen overnight. It's going to take a very long time. But that's sort of the when we look at businesses that are at the the vanguard of sustainability, that's the stuff they're doing. But like with anything, the tip of the spear is a very small group of people. And so what do you think are the levers that will force them to do it faster? Is it government regulation? Is it pressure from consumers? Is it pressure from employees inside? Like based on what you've been observing what is it that makes a company do it faster versus others that just sort of sit there and wait until they absolutely have to? All of the above. So I know we talk a lot in the sustainability <laughs> work, particularly in the particularly in the activist side of things of, of the bottom up people power approach, and that has its place. I am not a hundred percent behind the idea of people power. I think it, it, it's just a very small portion of everything that needs to be done, we can't rely entirely on it. I think what we also need to rely on is the top-down governmental command and control. And and having lived and worked in, in the command and control economy, China, for so long, I've seen what the government can do when it steps up and, and you know pulls the levers of power. And that helps. And we're seeing it here in Australia as well, where the government just over the past week actually have made a couple of really big announcements First, fining companies for greenwashing and putting a, a, a lens on that, but also forcing the hand of companies to report their their climate performance and their sustainability performance. Where yes, I know Australia is very far behind the rest of the world, but those are those are massive moves in this country, which is great. And we need to be seeing more governments doing the same thing. So it's a combination of that that people power bottom up and the top down command and control. And when they meet in the middle, that's when companies go okay. Obviously, something needs to change. I need to do something because I'm being told to from the top, but also because people aren't buying my stuff anymore coming from the bottom up. So, yes, it's an ideal scenario that we need to get to. And, and sometimes we need to be a little bit uh, idealistic, I suppose. But that's really where I've seen companies make the biggest changes is when those two things happen at once. Yeah, absolutely. I guess we're all in this together after all. <laughs> um, so right. What do you think that businesses should be focusing on Yeah, to make a, a real impact? So where should the efforts actually be Yeah, to make the largest impact? The biggest issue that businesses have, particularly now post-COVID, where we're seeing a, a massive, uh, in a good and a bad way, a massive jumping on board of sustainability where companies, for some reason or another, have realized oh my God, I have to do something. So they're doing it. And and I know we'll talk about greenwashing in a bit. So we're seeing an uptick in greenwashing because there's a dilution because so many more businesses are joining the the, the fight for sustainability, primarily because they see business, uh, see the financial returns on it, but that's a different issue. 
to make the biggest impact and, and what we're seeing now are more companies sort of jumping on the sustainability bandwagon, primarily because it makes financial sense for them. But what they're also doing is they think they have to do everything. And that's not just the companies that are new to sustainability. It's kind of all companies. They think they have to, to do it all. So what we'll see is a company trying to do a hundred different things across environment, social governance, all aspects of sustainability. And of course, when you try to do everything, you accomplish nothing. So the first big recommendation to business is always to focus on what's most material to your business. And for those that aren't in the sustainability space, we we do always push companies as a first engagement to do a materiality analysis, which is just a boring sustainability term for a SWOT analysis. So what's most important to your business? What do your stakeholders care about? Those are the internal stakeholders and your external stakeholders. And how can you then filter that down to the top two or three issues that you should be focused on? So as an example, if you are buyer pharmaceuticals, they do a lot of great things in obviously the pharmaceutical space, animal husbandry, which a lot of people don't know. They do a lot for, for animal medicine and, and veterinary science. That's the area they should be focused on. Should they be giving to a children's orphanage in Bangladesh? They can. But should they be focusing all their efforts on it? Probably not because it's not strategic. So with a materiality analysis, you really do figure out, okay, on paper, this is what my stakeholders are asking for. This is what I should focus on. And that nine times out of 10 really does help a corporation focus and and start to streamline what it is they're trying to do. And from there, it's staying focused on those two or three areas. That's where we see the biggest results. It's when companies try to do a whole bunch of stuff is when we have a lot of problems. When you have, you know, one department wanting to do one thing, you have the board wanting to do another, there's a passion project by the CEO, all of that doesn't help anything. It just uh, sort of gives very, very half-baked approaches and solutions to things. So the biggest recommendation I can make to business is always focus on the top two or three things that are most important to your business. Absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. And so you have a lot of amazing books and I was going to go in order that you wrote them, but I think based on our conversation trajectory, we're going to go backwards. So your newest book that's about to come out is called The Great Greenwashing, which is such a beautiful, excellent name. So how do you actually define greenwashing? Let's get into this topic now. Yeah, and it's it's interesting because greenwashing has had quite a resurgence. We thought we were we were kind of done with it pre-COVID, but post-COVID there there's been a lot more of it because a lot more companies are joining the the hopping on the sustainability bandwagon and they're they're contributing to this this uptick in greenwashing. And I guess to start off, there's different kinds of greenwashing. It's not not all created equal. In the corporate world, there are sort of two big types. So the first is pure greenwashing. It's lies that are told to consumers, veiled and enveloped in this language of sustainability to try to convince a consumer that a company is green, they're eco-friendly, they're sustainable when they may not be. And so those are just outright lies. It's baked into the marketing plan. And that's the the traditional use of, of greenwashing, kind of pioneered by really highly polluting industries like oil, gas. You know, I'm not going to name any names, but we can already have images in our mind of these campaigns that are trying to say we're doing great for the world when we all know they're not. And so we'll get into sort of what that looks like in reality, but obviously consumers are not that dumb. <laughs> so the companies are having to get a lot slicker with how they're approaching this. That's one type. 
But the second type of greenwashing is accidental greenwashing. Now, I'm not giving companies a pass if they do it, but a lot of times they they greenwash and they don't know they're greenwashing. They might say something inadvertently. They might slap eco logo or green packaging on a product thinking that that's okay because everybody else is doing it. And so those are those are missteps that there just needs to be an education for those companies so they don't do it again, but I don't think they're nefarious. So those are the two big buckets of greenwashing. And I would venture to guess a lot of companies kind of fall somewhere in the middle of those two. Mm. And so how can we actually spot some of these misleading claims in corporate greenwashing? Yeah. So there's there's three big types. I'm such a consultant as I talk through this. We love to use numbers. There's two of this. There's three of that. So there's three big types of, of greenwashing. The first <laughs> I is- I love numbers. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> the first is is- is green speak. So that's the first off the big traditional lies that are being told to you that again, you all are much smarter than to fall for that. So don't do that. But also in the the green speak category, you have things like statistics. We just talked about numbers. Companies love to use statistics that mean nothing. So you can be 90% more sustainable, 50% more recyclable, two times more X, Y, and Z, but that doesn't mean anything. There's no context behind it. And by and large, marketing departments and they're right, know that consumers are not going to research and figure out if a company is lying to them. I'm not going to do it, and I'm in the space. So a general consumer is definitely not going to do it. And they know that, and they're banking on that. So that's kind of the green speak part of things. You'll also see stamps of approval falling under green speak. And the biggest one is the Rainforest Alliance. And a lot of people would have seen that maybe on the boxes of tea or coffee. It's a little green frog. And that's a great stamp of approval saying, yes, this company is eco-certified. But marketing departments have gotten really smart. And now they've created their own stamps of approval that have no basis in reality. And so you'll see a stamp that looks real on a box. It's not. It's just something the marketing department made up. So that's how they're getting slicker with how they're lying to you. It's totally unethical. And ethics is obviously a very big part of sustainability. So there's a lot of unpacking that needs to be done there. So that's the first part. The second is misdirection. And I like to use the analogy of the Wizard of Oz. So, you know, you have Dorothy and all her friends. They've, they've made it to the Emerald City and they see the big, great, powerful Oz. There's plumes of smoke and fire and they're, they're shaking in their boots. But then little Toto goes to this green screen that's, that's off stage, pulls it back. And there's the, the wizard, the real wizard, the snake oil salesman behind the curtain, pulling levers and pushing buttons, acting, you know, like he's more important than he actually is. And that's the same thing businesses are doing. They're misdirecting. They're saying, look over here. Don't look behind the curtain because they don't want you to see what they're doing. So they may give to a charity in Zimbabwe, but they don't tell you that, especially in the fast fashion industry, all the terrible things that are happening in South Asia or in uh, Southeast Asia. So they're telling you to look over here, don't look over there. And that takes a lot more research on the part of the consumer to find out about. So it's a lot more difficult to discern. And the third part, which is even further down this rabbit hole, are companies that actually fund organizations that are lobby groups for their industries. So on the surface, for example, there are organizations around the world that look like they are NGOs. They look like they're sustainable organizations. There's a group out of, and I forget the name, there's a group out of the EU that on the surface, the name, everything about them, their messaging all indicates that they are a green eco news organization. But what they actually are is they're funded by the oil industry and they're pushing out fake climate denialist news. 
So it, it's just amazing the the efforts that these companies will go to to fund anti climate rhetoric, so that people just don't do anything about it because they know that their survival is on the line. Yeah, which I think is is very scary and frustrating as a consumer to just know that we're inundated with all these different messages every day and that it really almost is a bit of a fight to actually find the truth. <laughs> and it's a lot of effort. So I guess when you talk about the great greenwashing, where are we in that, you know, and, and how can consumers... I don't know, like, should we still be positive about it? Like, are we in the middle of it? Is there still going to be more to come now that everyone's getting more on the sustainability bandwagon? Like, what is sort of where where are we in that journey? And, and when can we sort of get to a point where we can have trust again in what's being said to us? Or do we think that's just not even going to happen again in our lifetime? I don't know. It's it's a fascinating question. And I am, again, quite hopeful because consumers are so switched on. It's no longer in the sustainability space an issue of getting people to listen, which has been our fight for 10 years of getting people to care. Now everybody cares. So that's a great platform. It's, it's now how we use that platform and this opportunity that we have to catapult into the next iteration of wherever we're going, hopefully uh, moving forward and up when it comes to sustainability. So I am convinced consumers Consumers are are ready to to make that leap again. Going back to stats, the latest AC Nielsen stats around sustainability. They do sort of this annual tracker. Every year, there's been increases in how much people will spend on sustainable products, how informed they are, how much they care. If we look at Asia Pacific as a market, I think it's somewhere along the lines of 92 to 95 percent of consumers demand that companies now stand for something more than just making money. So there's even ethics being put into the the, the mix of consumer consideration. So all of that's happening. We have this platform, now we need to use it. So that's that's quite a hopeful thing and I'm I'm convinced that we will use it. And like I mentioned a little while back, those companies that are not playing ball, there, there's not going to be space for them much longer. And a lot of that will be driven by by consumers at at the forefront, just speaking with their wallets. So I'm I'm curious about that point as well because I come from a fashion background and obviously we read all these reports and all these like statistics that come out especially about Gen Z and how they care the most about the planet and they're the most willing to spend on more sustainable products and yet their what they say and their actions don't really correspond because Shein that Chinese fast fashion company has seen an unprecedented amount of growth and they're literally creating like millions and millions of products every year that so much is ending up in landfill and that's largely also being driven by Gen Z. So I just think that there's a huge disconnect and there's a big psychological issue that we're dealing with here. And so what are your thoughts on on that side of things? Yeah, it's it's disgusting every time I get on TikTok and I see a Shein haul. And I, I'm I'm happy to say that they I don't see them as much anymore. Maybe my for you page is just more curated than it was, but uh it it, it may it, it aggravates me every time I see it. And you're right, there is this strange dichotomy between what's being said and what's being done. And I think that's always the case with anything around consumption, right? We say one thing, we do another. But but we are seeing more of an amalgamation between the saying and doing being the same thing, which is good. So so there's sort of that. And I think behind the scenes as well, we have to remember that corporations are doing a whole lot of stuff. Shein is a, a great example of a company that's come in sort of very recently and and made us take you know two steps back when we were actually moving forward. So great, great to bring them up. And I uh, am so disheartened that they, they exist at all. But yes, they, they do. So we have to use that as sort of our basis of reality. But behind the scenes, you have uh, pr- primarily the fast fashion giants are uh, H&M. They're not great 
right? They all, they have their issues, absolutely, and I, I don't necessarily support a lot of uh, their their models, but they're doing amazing things when it comes to the the other aspects of sustainability that are not necessarily environment. So I guess to back up one step, we have to remember that sustainability is not just hugging the trees and saving the polar bears. That's a, a very important aspect of it, the environmental side. But there's also the social side, the labor rights, the human rights, the, and there's how all of this is governed. So in our world, we call it ESG, environment, social governance. So sustainability really is this umbrella term. So environmentally, these companies are still doing the same bad stuff socially they're they're making great strides at becoming better and i always use the example of walmart and i know around the world walmart has an awful reputation when it comes to labor rights and rightly so they haven't been the the best company in the world when when we look at it through that lens but i did quite a bit of work with them in china in their factories developing programs for women's empowerment And a lot of companies are doing these women empowerment programs where they'll go in and they'll supplement education where a woman may not have received this in school. So that could be communications, family planning, personal health and wellness, on-the-job skill training as well. And it's not just an altruistic thing. It also makes business sense because as employees go through these programs, they are more productive. They show up to work more. The, the company has a better reputation in their mind. So it's this beautiful marriage of the altruism and the business that's bringing these programs together. And it's not just Walmart. There are a lot of companies in the FMCG space, in the tech space that are putting workers through these programs at scale. I think the Walmart program over the course of three years, almost 200,000 women went through it. So it's amazing programs going on behind the scenes that a lot of people don't know about. So on the one hand, to, to your point, there is this a lot of negative stuff happening, especially in fast fashion, but also across FMCG. But behind the scenes, even more good stuff is happening. So I think the because the obvious next question is, why is that? Why is that going on? And I suppose a lot of it is because companies don't like to talk about the sustainability work they're doing because it maybe feels a little bit inauthentic. So for those companies doing these empowerment programs, they rarely talk about it publicly. They rarely make a big splash about it. It's usually done through foundations as well. So they, they really find it disingenuous to talk about it. I think more and more we need companies to be upfront talking about the amazing things they're doing and remembering too that consumers don't expect companies to be perfect. But they do expect you to be honest and to to be making strides in the right direction, not to be going backwards. Yeah, no, I think that's a really interesting point about the we don't expect to understand everything, but we do expect honesty. So I think I, I really like what you've said there. And so I would love to now talk about your very first book that you wrote, which is First Sustainability for the Rest of Us, and would want to know what this no bullshit plan that we should all adopt <laughs> that you discuss in that book. It's, I love that. Uh, no bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> I, I coined it before everybody else used no BS, so I'll take I'll take credit for it. <laughs> so it's <laughs> it it's really it was born out of this idea of sort of people not understanding what to do because there was so much messaging being thrown at them. There was so much that could be done and people kind of sitting back and going, oh my God, I'm, I'm confused. And that all stems kind of from this 
really terrible approach to marketing that we have in sustainability. And I would have loved to have been in the room when whatever genius came up with with our approach. You have the hellscape of an Earth. It's this Mad Max dystopia, dystopian future. You have the the sad polar bear on the ice cap. It's all these. It's advertising, right? And when you see advertising, and you're one of eight billion people, you just go, "Well, I can't do anything about any of that. I'll just uh, put my hands up and forget it." That's where the book was born from. It's it's no 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 no. There there's plenty of stuff that you can do. And so what I do is I talk through a bit of the history of sustainability, but also five big things that I believe consumers and the general public can do when it comes to being more sustainable individually. I'm not going to give all five away because then there would be no reason for people to buy the book. <laughs> I'll give a few though. So, <laughs> I think the, the very first thing that people need to understand is that you can do anything, but you cannot do everything. So as altruists, we do want to do it all. We see the dog that we want to adopt off the street. We see the homeless person we want to give money to. We want to go volunteer at you know the, the senior center on the weekends. Resources, capacity, sanity, all of that's finite. So I think it's important for people to remember that you're not the only person fighting this fight. There are millions of others that also care. So you need to carve out your own little niche of the world that you want to contribute to and stick to that. And that could be contributing your time as a volunteer. It could be contributing your expertise. If you're a financial advisor, for example, you know, helping with the books at an, at an NGO, they definitely need those, those people. So donating of your capacity or also donating money. If you're well off, there's no issue in my mind of marrying, talking about money and talking about doing good. They, they should be working together. So that's the first big thing is people need to remember to sort of carve out their niche. I think the second is to, and I described myself as this earlier, be a pragmatic altruist. So wear your heart on your sleeve, but think strategically about how you're doing it. And and don't just do things for the sake, don't shout for the sake of shouting, actually make a difference. And that leads to then sort of a third big point, And that's don't try, do. So a lot of times as, as, altruist, you know, we dip our toe in here, we try to do this, we'll go down to Mexico to build a house, or like I said before, volunteer at a shelter. That's great. But that doesn't necessarily help those organizations that really do need long term sustained assistance. So it's much better to pick a cause or a charity or an organization that you're going to be devoted to for a very long time, and continuously give to that versus just trying a bunch of things a little half heartedly and never sticking to one. Yeah, no, I really like that. I think focus and that also helps to remove a lot of the overwhelm that a lot of people think feel, especially when they first go down the sustainability rabbit hole or the, I guess, weight of the truth finally hits them. They can get really disheartened. So I think being focused, having a few things that you're passionate about, carving out your niche, as you said, I think those are all really practical and positive things that people can do that allow them to regain you know, that confidence and also the enjoyment with it. Because I think this this journey can be enjoyable and it can be fun and you can it can bring you joy. And I think that's such an important part to not lose in the fight against doing the right thing. <laughs> the one thing that I found really interesting is you discussed that eco-warriors have actually made the world a worse place. So why do you say that? People don't like to hear that message. Um, <laughs> but in, in, in my little, little part of the sustainability universe, I, I do take issue with not all activists, although I do take issue with some activists, but but the, the eco-warriors, you know, sort of writ large. And the issue I have 
is that they've become the loudest voice and the poster children for the movement. Now, if we take a step back and you put yourself in the in the mind frame of a typical person on the street and you see an eco warrior or these very loud activists gluing their faces to the street or, you know, refusing to bathe or living off the grid, which is basically giving up your phone and all modern conveniences to go live in a cabin in the woods. That's very fringe stuff. And it's not at all representative of most people like yourself and myself who are in this fight day in and day out where we're quasi-normal people, usually, right? So if if we're trying to get people involved and the goal, remember, now is no longer to and I'll use a marketing marketing phraseology. It's no longer to drive impressions. People know about sustainability. They know that there's stuff that needs to be done. It's it, We're no longer at that phase of the movement to drive impressions. Now it's about driving conversions. Now we need to get people on side. That's where we are. So activists, eco-warriors, they served a purpose at the very early stages of sustainability to drive the impressions up and to get people listening. Now we need other people to, to go out and uh, essentially convert <laughs> to the cause. And so I don't feel that continuing to have poster children that sit on the fringes of society is going to do much to help us to convert normal people sitting in the middle to our cause. I don't subscribe to that model. I certainly am not a what one would call a perfect environmentalist. I love getting on a plane and going, you know, to the beach in, in Thailand. I love my cell phone. You know, every once and again, I'll go shopping at Cause, which is owned by H&M. So, you know, these things happen. This is the reality of today. We cannot get away from that. So if that's our starting point, if we're not going to go back to the dark ages, what do we do from here on out? How do we take a realistic approach to building a better future, not one that is pie in the sky, Pollyanna, never going to happen approaches that a lot of these folks that sit on the fringe tend to take? Mm. Yeah, no, it's interesting. And and thank you for sharing. I think there's there's always a spectrum. And I think like while extreme activists, they sort of set one level of tone. And I think we need some of what they do. I think you're right. You know, we also need to just help people to realize that they can be imperfect environmentalists. And it's way better to be imperfect, but doing some things than trying to do everything and using perfectionism as a cop out, because I really hate that. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So you also recently worked on DocuSign's latest ebook, Is the Paper Costing Us the Earth? So yeah, this is really interesting and would love to hear about why paper is actually so dangerous and just give people a little bit of understanding of like what they can do post like instead. It's quite the title. It's it's a very sensationalistic title, which we love because it, it gets people listening. But the work we did was really to look at first greenwashing. And also sort of innovation in the tech space. So it's not so much that paper is dangerous. You know, we've been using paper since the ancient Egyptians and the ancient, ancient Chinese when, when they created paper. So it, it's, it's not that it's necessarily a, a terrible thing. Yes, there are billions of trees felled every year, which releases carbon into the atmosphere just to make a few pieces of paper. And in all transparency, I'm sort of analog myself, so I will still write on paper. So it's not like I've entirely given it up. But what we really wanted to look at is how changes in mind frames 
can drive innovation to a more sustainable future. And this was sort of an aha moment that I had working with DocuSign that I hadn't considered before. We've all used DocuSign. They've been around It's what seems like forever, even though I know they haven't. But but we've all sort of encountered them at some point. But you never really think about the amazing environmental impact they've had by taking all of that paper out of the office space. So that's sort of where we're going with with looking at innovation in tech and how that can drive more positive future, right? And this is the innovations that we need, particularly in the corporate world of, okay, let's sit down and put our brains together and figure out, okay, how can we use the technology we have or the insights that we now have as a modern society to do better than the previous generation? And that's really what we're looking at as well. And also to get people thinking a little more critically about not just is a company lying to me, but can a company be doing better? Can a company be using its platform to create something that is far more innovative, that it's going to push the needle? If you look at sort of how tech has changed our lives over the past 20 years, it's it's not linear, it's exponential. So how can we then, as general consumers, continue to push that exponential improvements to uh, lead to a brighter future? Mm. Yeah, no, thank you for that. That's really... It's true that some innovations can really help to solve issues, but we don't even realize it's so... It just kind of happens, right? And then all of a sudden you're like, oh, wait, yeah, they did save a lot of trees by just that small little innovation helping everyone. So yeah, I like that perspective. How do you think that we can live wide awake? I love that question. I love the phraseology of the question as well. And obviously with with questions like that, a lot of it's very personal. So I think for me, living wide awake is really, I'm going to sound like such an old man. And for those that aren't seeing my face, I'm not an old man. Get off your phones. Like just, and I use that as a, as a way to say, just be cognizant of everything going on around you. We are so myopic. We are so sort of stuck in our, our silos, which we talk about so often. And it's not just in the business world or in politics and our thinking. It's also just not considering others. So for me, living wide awake really is having that, that worldview of things that are outside your purview and not to just be aware of them, but embrace them towards uh, this this idea of, of personal evolution and growth, which I'm sure you've heard before. But I think living wide, wide awake really does speak to that. It speaks to this idea of continuous education and growth and not just uh, sitting back and, and watching Netflix all day. Yeah, absolutely. Well, John, I love and really appreciate your clear-cut answers and how you're able to explain these complicated topics really simply and just your sheer optimism. I think it's very encouraging and we definitely need more people to adopt this pragmatic optimism, as you said. So thank you so much for joining us. Great speaking. Thanks for having me. Three things I'm taking away from this conversation with John. Firstly, sustainability businesses are outperforming and sustainability works. It's just, we all have to keep on going. Secondly, you can do anything, but you can't do everything. So let's remember that our resources, capacity and energy are finite. So it's best that we carve our niche and focus on that. And thirdly, it's okay to be an imperfect environmentalist as long as we don't try, but actually do. curious what did you think about the episode and what were your main takeaways is there a topic you want me to dive deeper into i'd love to hear from you you can find me at stephel dixon or at live wide awake if you got something out of the podcast and you want to continue this journey with us consider subscribing and supporting i hope that today's conversation stirred something deep within you ready to awaken and until next time live wide awake